0: You're listening to MHD Off the Record. On this episode, we're speaking about new models of policing and public safety with two special guests, Brian S. Bentley and Leslie Cooper Johnson. Brian S. Bentley is a former LAPD officer and author of the book One Time, the story of a South Central Los Angeles police officer, where he graphically depicts his involvement in suspect beatings and describes in detail the gratification he and his partners received from their actions. We also have Leslie Cooper Johnson. She is the vice president of organizational development at the community coalition and is currently the convener for the Push LA Collective which stands for promoting unity, safety, and health in Los Angeles. Push LA was formed in response to decades of racist policing and has a mission to reimagine, protect, and serve. Enjoy the show. <laughs>
1: All right. uh, Welcome everybody. We got great guests today. Uh, Siobhan uh, you've read uh, the intros onto the podcast here. uh, So I'll just get started because it's such an important topic. We're at the 30th anniversary of the 1992 uh, civil unrest. It's been 31 years since we all watched the video beating of uh, Rodney King on the side of the road in Los Angeles by Los Angeles police department uh, officials or officers. uh, And the struggle for reforming the relationship between the police and the community has come a long, long way. And both of you are part of that in different ways. And so I'll begin with you, uh, Leslie. I know you're the vice president of Community Coalition, uh, longtime South LA uh, resident uh, and community leader, but kind of talk to us about how you got to the point that you are and and, uh, how you came to sort of the leadership of the PUSH LA Coalition.
2: Um, Well, first of all, I just want to say thanks for having me here. It's an awesome opportunity. I was excited about it. Um, How did I get here? So I've been at Community Coalition for 15 years and um, I've been working in South LA for that long. Um, I came to the Coalition through an internship. I was Mm -hmm. doing my master's in social work at the University of Southern California and took an internship opportunity at at COCO. And it was my first introduction to community organizing and it just made a lot of sense to me. It just, um, being at Community Coalition gave me the language and the framework of activism that I hadn't been able to uh, express on my own before then. So um, I have really enjoy being able to, you know, be a paid activist, if you will, and be able to, you know, have that be my livelihood and be able to, to fight for, for my community. Um, I'm really excited about being able to do the Push LA work because Police violence, police brutality has unfortunately been a part of my life and I think a part of the lives of many people who live in South LA. I actually live in Inglewood, but my church is in South LA, my work, everything. Um, And you know, we don't operate with the borders. Like, you know, it's across the street, right? So, uh, But I've had a lot of personal experiences. Unfortunately, a a person that was very close to me was killed by the Inglewood police when I was a teenager. And just saw, you know, black men mostly, my friends being pulled over, my friends being harassed. Um, Not, you know, not a lot of things happening to me directly, but to mostly to the men and the young men in my life. And so um, that's just been a a part of my upbringing, um, a part of my life. And I feel very privileged now to be able to work towards, you know, changing some of those conditions um, around police violence and police abuse in our communities.
1: Excellent. Uh, And Officer Bentley former former officer, former officer. Yeah. he made that say clear that. Say that. yeah 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 don't you get once you have it you have it they're going to call me councilman forever even when i finally get out of there okay. um tell us your tell us your story well
3: i became a police officer in um, 1989 and i did my first um, probation the rookie my rookie year west los angeles division I had a black captain and um, my training officer my first day told me that he wasn't there to train me, he was there to fire me, because he believed that blacks, Hispanics, women were only on the job for, uh, because of affirmative action. So I went to my captain and I complained, and I said, hey, my training officer uh, is racist. And my captain said, well, you know, I've been on the job 35 years, you don't think I know that already? He said that, you know, who do you want me to complain to? You want me to complain to the commander? He's a racist too. You want me to complain to Daryl Gates? He's also a racist. He said, you're just gonna have to deal with it. And um, he said, if you're gonna survive on this job, you're just gonna to have to deal with whatever comes along. He says, the racism, the police brutality, all that will be here. It was here before you came and it's gonna be here when you leave. That was his advice. He said, and if you wanna have a long career, you just need to deal with it. Well, it always bothered me. And so at, a, um, you know, at that beginning stage of my career, I knew that I couldn't go to uh, the administration, to my superiors to complain about problems. Uh, I had to deal with them myself. And so one of the things I decided to do was to write books about everything that I saw that was incorrect for people who, you know, as a reference, for people who were activists who wanted to, uh, you know, make a difference so they would have um, resources and uh, a reference to to try to go about, you know, make a change and understanding what it's like uh, for a police officer and that whole mindset. And so that's why I started writing, and because of that, I got fired.
1: Wow. So you... um, Started in 1989. I presume you were there in 1991. It's just a year and a half later, I guess. Yes. When, uh, when the Rodney King beatings happened. Walk us through that sort of year between March of 91 and April of 92 and I guess 94 even after that.
3: Well, I grew up in Los Angeles and I had friends who had been... Um, beaten by the police and they would explain it, they would talk about it at school. And in my mind, I just thought it was just, you know, maybe like the police grabbed them or something like that. You know, I really, really didn't understand what it looked like. And so I was a rookie at West LA and I was sitting in the watch commander's office, uh, getting a report approved and I saw it on television, the Rodney King beating, and it was horrible. I just couldn't believe that, you know, that, that's what a police beating looked like. Mm-hmm. And it was just awful. Well, a couple months later, I transferred to Southwest Division, which is the division where I also live in. And on a scale of one to 10, 10 being worse, the Rodney King beating was like a three.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah,
3: compared wow. to what I saw in South LA. Goodness. It was, it was, it was like love taps. Uh, I, every, almost every night, people were being brought into the station with brain matter coming out of their head, jaws broken, just, it, it was horrible. And so, um, for me, it, seeing that all the time is, is something that uh, I wanted to address. And um, my book, my first book that I wrote, which is called One Time, uh, what it does is it graphically uh, depicts beatings and the psychological uh, process that officers go through.
0: In fact, you say that officers are addicted to the violence.
3: Oh yeah, I, I, we have officers, my partners, uh, they, you know they live for that. Um, police officers consider themselves as hunters of men. And, um, you know, where's the best place to hunt? Is, is in, in, in the area where they don't complain and where you can just do whatever you want to do, and that's in South LA. Mm-hmm. You know, I had the opportunity to first start in West LA and then in South LA. And seeing that in West LA is totally different. I, p- I patrol Bel Air, Palisades. They don't treat people the same way as they do here. I mean, you have officers who who literally come from Montana, um, Wyoming, and they all want to work 77th Division and Southwest Division, Newton Division, because they know that by reputation, those are the best places that are the most violent, the best places to hunt,
1: um, where you can get into a shooting and it won't be questioned. Wow. Leslie, I know Push LA has done a really good job publicizing a lot of the inequality in terms of traffic stops. And we focus on traffic stops because traffic stops are often the point of mm-hmm. conflict, or where the conflict starts, or where the beating happens. I mean, you know, this city has had two of the biggest civil unrest events in the history of the United States. Both of them started with a traffic stop.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, talk to us about the data that you all have found, and sort of the narrative that you're hearing in the community around around the pretext, what's called a pretextual stop.
2: Um, gosh. I, I'm, I will answer your question, but I'm still, I'm looking at, I'm just still, (laughs) I know y'all can't see my face, but my face is, gosh, to hear that that was a three on a scale to 10, because that's crazy. I mean, I was 13 years old when that video came out and I remember looking at it and thinking, this is horrific. Just the way that they were kind of standing around him. It just didn't even look like there was any kind of official business going on. Like we're going to apprehend the suspect. It looked like, someone was getting jumped into a gang. Like there's just people right. surrounding right. him and just, you know, waiting to get their licks in. So to hear that that was just a, a mild case is mild case. mind blowing to me. And I remember seeing that video and thinking, okay, finally someone's gonna do something yep. about this because yep. it's finally on video and now the rest of the world will see what we've been living with and dealing with and talking about and you haven't been listening because maybe you didn't know, mm-hmm. but now you're gonna see it for yourself and you're gonna do something about it. And it was just so disappointing to see that that didn't happen and it still doesn't happen. Um, but to your question around push LA and the data um, around pretextual stops, you know, it's interesting because there's also you know a debate about public safety going on in the in the sure. in the landscape right now, and um, you know the, one of the good things about being a community coalition is that we're connected to real real everyday people. So it's not just a bunch of us sitting around with degrees and you know pontificating around like what the community needs, and what the people need. You know, we actually talk to real people, and and people are tired of being pulled over and harassed, you know for for things like uh, a broken tail light or um, other kind of uh, pieces that are not criminal in nature in terms of like a, a crime against a person um, and so the data shows us that um, black people in particular are disproportionately impacted by by what this, what's called a pretextual stop where you pull over someone for like a minor violation and then use that as an opportunity to investigate a more serious crime or just ask some questions and you know do what you will so um so not only are black people disproportionately impacted by that like pulled over more than our representation in the population um but the data also shows us that uh, when white people are pulled over there's contraband found contraband found more often when white people are pulled over so not only is it um disproportionate and it's racist but it's not effective like you're not actually even doing the job that you said that you're right, setting out to do right, right. so that's doubly frustrating and if, and if i'm the chief of police i'm looking at that and saying this is not uh, Attacked tactic That's helping me, you know. Actually stop crime. So why am I? Why do I continue to do this? What What am I getting out of this? You know. So that's yeah. That's what we're seeing. And and people are saying, you know, in some cases when people call nine one one, they do they do want someone to show up. Yep. Where they don't want someone to show up is when they're just going about their normal business and you're getting pulled over. I've heard from folks getting pulled over, you know, more than once in a day yep. in different parts of the city, right? Yep. And, and I can hear that from my husband, a black man who's who's experienced those things. So. That's the crux of the the data that we're seeing. Yeah. You
1: can hear that from any of the three black men who are members of the city council. Yeah, who've been pulled over while they're on city council in their government cars. Of mm-hmm. uh, myself, not not excluded from that. Also, you know, I'll tell a, tell an anecdote from being a council member that speaks to the data that you just put out, Leslie. You know, I had a brother come to me and say, you know, he's the manager of a grocery store in my district in South LA, in the eighth district, but he lives in the Inland Empire. Mm. And he says, getting off the 110 freeway, you know, to drive through my place. It's like, I've been pulled over four times and had my car surged and the whole nine yards. And he's like, that is horrible. He's like, but here's what makes it worse. He's like, my store will be getting robbed. Like an actual crime will be happening. And I call the police and it takes hours for someone to get there. And so he's like, what? like, if time if there's time for four dudes to stop me by the freeway, Four different times in the space of a year. Why is it that we can't get anybody when there's an actual crime going on that we were saying, okay, this is when we need you when something's uh, something's happening? Uh, Brian, can you uh, give us a picture into how that works, how the process of. Deciding how you all are deployed or how you were deployed when you were an officer. Well, I'll tell you a quick you know, story, responding too. Responding to calls versus just random pullovers. Okay.
3: I, I'm going to tell you a very quick story, too. When I was a police officer in West Los Angeles, I would take a, a shortcut through Culver City uh, to, to get home. And I would get pulled over by Culver City PD at least twice a month. And it, wow. got, it got so bad that my watch commander had to call Cobra City PD's watch commander and tell them that there's Crazy. this black police officer about to drive home, yeah. and he wow. would have to warn them. So it, it, it's a widespread problem, you know, as, as we already know. But but here's the thing, you know, I'm glad that um, someone's doing something about the uh, pretext stops. But let me give you some of the mindset of of what what goes into it. When I was uh, at Southwest Division, the watch commander had a clipboard, clipboard in his office, and it had all the generic police reports, all the generic crime reports. Suspect between five, five, six, five, driving a dark colored car. And it was, that clipboard was filled with um, these police reports with general descriptions. So whenever we pulled over someone and um, they said they didn't fit the description, by the time we got to the police station, they fit a description
1: on that clip. One of them, yeah.
3: One of them, and so what's interesting is about what's interesting that I that I'm you know that I like is that officers have to articulate um, on their camera why they are taking that uh, stop further to search yeah. the vehicle, because what we would do is. Is that we wouldn't tell them why they're being pulled over or why we're searching a car. We wouldn't find that out until after we got back to the police station and looked through the clipboard. We we'll say, um, okay, so we pulled over our Marquise. Um, we didn't have a reason, but let me look. You look through there. And you say, here's a here's a report of a blackmail, bald, right? Mm-hmm. We got you. So that's that's the mindset, and I'm hoping that um, the way things have changed, that is going to make a, a difference. Um, it will make a difference, but some of the more um, officers who are really sick and who are really addicted to it will find a way to get around it. But that is the mentality, and people often talk about training. That's how police officers train. We don't need more training. Police officers are... People think that police officers are these ignorant um, males who only have a GED, but... When it comes, right, yeah. but whatever, when it comes to... Um, circumventing your civil rights they're like brain surgeons they can just Mm -hmm. pick it apart they they, they can work around it and they practice it in in roll call and um, you know that's what you're up against and so these officers train for it and when they stop you they know that they're gonna find a reason to do it and um, when I was a police officer also we had a, a cheat sheet and it had all the minor infractions, everything. Things you, you didn't even know were in the vehicle right, called right. dirty license plate. Um, the major thing is a tassel or something hanging from the rearview mirror. Um, you know, I never let my kids uh, put their graduation tassel or work um, no on that anymore. I, I
2: actually could... got pulled over for <laughs> that. Really? Yeah. I had my graduation tassel hanging on my, what's that, the, the rear view mirror. Yeah. yeah. And I was told that, that was the reason it was impeding my, my view and that was the
0: reason, wow. that, even though it's
3: mm-hmm. below the mirror. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, like, you know, my kids always thought, you know, because I was a police officer, I was very strict, but those are the, you know, that's that's a real, a real fear.
1: You know? And it's, you know, I appreciate you for saying that because sometimes I get beat up on the city council because the council will, something will happen, it will be a legitimate nuisance, right? The latest thing was homeless people stealing bikes, bringing them to encampments, fixing them, and then selling them, right? I don't have any doubt that some people's bikes are being stolen. But what the city council wants to do is anybody fixing a bicycle oh, wow. on public property that can't produce a receipt is subject to arrest.
0: Who keeps the receipt of a bicycle that Right. Bought?
1: And <laughs> how many times do you, does your bike break on the way to the park? I feel like I only fix my bike in the street. <laughs> like, I don't feel right. like it, my, if my bike was broken in the backyard, that Through was... Your monthly maintenance. Right. Yeah. Like, that's that didn't happen, but... It's like, I was trying to explain to my colleagues, It's like, look bro, like you passed these laws and it may or may not stop what you're trying to get at, which I don't have any argument that people don't want their bikes stolen, great. You shouldn't have that, that shouldn't happen to you. But, you know, I'd rather make it easy for people to put um, GPS chips in their bike than to give police another reason to interact and stop people and harass people. So now you're gonna have Children working on their bicycles, getting questioned by LAPD officers over right. nonsense. And, uh-huh. they,
0: and they stop you anyway. I used to get stopped all the time in high school. On your bike? No, I was walking. Wow. Because <laughs> I was in um, the USC program, and mm-hmm. so we would take our That's morning right. classes at USC, then we would either um, get bused back to our home schools, which would either be Manual Arts High School or Fauche. Sometimes we didn't have a bus to take us back or the bus was broken down or it was too late and we had another program we had to get to on campus and we would walk. We would get stopped and our backpacks searched almost every time that happened. And when you said something about it, they just ignored everything you said. You can't do that, they didn't care. They just kept doing it. And it was something that was so pervasive that the university had to give us special IDs. Wow. So the police could see that we weren't ditching, we weren't truant. And by the way, police will make students truant. People don't talk about that. They'll literally pick them up 10 minutes before the bell, drive them around, and then make them, and they say, oh, now you're truant. Happened to my brother. So yeah, so they'll stop anybody for any reason. If you give them another excuse. right? That's
1: it, yeah. That's why we fight it, and I try to tell people: it's like, it's not that I don't care that your bike got stolen. It's that this is the reality for people.
3: Right. And, and with a uh, pretext stop, it's it's a it's a numbers game. If you pull over, I'm just going to randomly say 35 people. You'll find one person. Who has a gun or or some kind of contraband, right? And it's the same in West Los Angeles, but they don't do it, right? You know, and so they believe, officers believe that it's a numbers game. You pull over enough people, you'll find that gun, You'll right. find you'll find the drugs, whatever. But it's not the same in in West in West Los Angeles.
1: And that that's not how a free country is supposed to operate. I mean, you know, I always say if you want to completely stop crime, you just put it every male 18 to 35 in the military. Right. And you probably won't have any crime. I mean, you won't have any violent crime for sure. Uh, but that's not what we do. Just, we have a free country, and so uh, people are allowed uh, to be in the streets, to be in the economy, to operate in society like normal people. Right. Well, with
3: um, you know our community, you, you often hear the police chief talk about we have a, a war on drugs, a war on crime, war on gangs. Anytime you talk about war, you, you have to throw in um, collateral damage. Right. And that's what they're preparing you for, mm-hmm. is that you're in a, a war zone, so you're gonna be a victim of, you're gonna be collateral damage.
1: And it lets you treat and, people as, as if they're less than human. Right. Yeah, yes. no, I, I think that's right. So I, I'm dying to hear both of you talked about what happened when you saw the beatings, and then the trial, which were coming on the anniversary of the trial next month uh, walk us through what it was like in the station and in your household uh, and uh, uh, and in your community when you when both of you heard that heard that verdict which I know all of us uh, all of us remember
3: right when um, I heard the verdict I, I I was at home I was watching and I was on a day off and um, I got a call and I was told to come in and I was like I'm on my day off they were like, everybody has to come in. Mm-hmm. So I live, as I mentioned before, I live in Southwest Division. I live in Leimert Park. Okay. So I was driving in and everything was on fire. People were in the middle of the street looking into people's cars as they drove by. And it was just it was just chaotic. So once I went into the uh, police station, at that particular time, we all the officers were there, but we didn't have enough equipment, enough cars, um, enough shotguns, tasers. So a lot of officers were just sitting there. Uh, because we didn't have the resources to go out. And then we were told that uh, the jails were full, so don't get involved in anything major. you know, it's a riot. How do you not get involved in anything major? So basically, for about three days, we just drove around and watched people loot. You know, for me, it was very troubling. You know, I had uh, partners who would say, well, you know, they want to burn down the community. Let them do it. You know, but that was my community. You know, the stores that were being looted were my stores that I shopped um you know the restaurants the bank on 29th and crenshaw i used to work there and people were breaking in there so it was it was very um it was a very sad moment for me because i saw my neighborhood getting burnt down and i couldn't do anything about it but watch yeah so i was i was pretty much a spectator uh doing the riots and i was i was right in the middle of it we went to florence and normandy we were going back and forth all over the city and basically, we, we just watched. We were not prepared.
0: I wonder, is it true? Because I've heard this. I was like seven when this happened. So my memory of it is um, kind of based upon you know the viewpoint of a seven-year-old. But I used to always hear how people said they weren't even allowed to leave to go to a... So if you were in South LA, you wanted to go to the IE, to see your family, the police weren't even letting people leave or they were making it difficult for people to leave. Was that a strategy to keep people contained?
3: Well, they weren't uh, necessarily make it letting people leave. The other agencies were, like Beverly Hills and so forth, weren't letting people come in there into okay. their community unless you prove that you lived there. You know, they have roadblocks all over. And they didn't want people looting in other areas, so they stopped people at their, at their borders. And you had to show ID or proof why you were going there.
2: I was um, so I was 14 then when the verdict came out, and I was in high school. And my high school I was living in Inglewood. My high school was in Hollywood, and I remember the you know school administrators getting the getting the girls. It was an all girls school, so getting the girls that lived like south of the ten, basically, and saying y'all need to find a way to get home. Like you need to go get home as soon as you can because you know, there, you may not be able to get home if you don't leave now, you know? And I remember that, and, you know, and the days kind of like bleed together. Um, I can't remember like, you know, everything chronologically, but I do remember my friend's mom coming to pick us up and we were driving down Crenshaw and driving past the, the Crenshaw Mall. And so this probably was later on, but the, the National Guard was there. And I remember just being like, wow, like there's straight soldiers with, rifles and assault weapons you know on the street in front of the mall and and they are here treating us like we're the enemy it just felt very strange and i guess um you know i can't imagine what it's like to actually live in a in a in a war torn country but that, i think that was like getting a taste of what it felt like to be occupied in a in a very real invisible way i think we're occupied on a day to day anyway but that just felt very different and then um i also remember like having to field questions at school, you know, later on, like, why, why were people doing that? Like, you know, why are, you know, to your point, like people want to burn down their own community, they just didn't understand why people were so upset. And it was just, it was so frustrating to me because I was like, I don't understand how you don't understand when this isn't about just one incident, this is, you know, this has been decades in the making. And it's like, you, you talk about it, you complain about it, you vent about it. And then, like I said earlier, there's a video now, so people are going to get it, you know what I'm saying? And then for people to see that and for that verdict to still come out, it just felt, it's, yeah, people are, people are upset and we have nothing left to do but to lash out and just to express your anger and frustration because when you use your words or when you try to be civil about it, like you you're not being heard, yeah. you know? So you just got to be heard in some way. And so it was just, um, yeah, just people who were, were not from the community, um, just not understanding. And I think there, there's still a lot of that now.
1: There is, there is a good amount of it now. It, it's interesting to have been there for 92 and then to have been here for George Floyd. Mm. The, so in, there's a ways in which you can see that there's some progress. And there are other ways which you look like, why are we even trying to get this right? Like, yeah. what difference does it make? Um, you know, the different, I mean, Rodney King officers didn't know they were being videotaped guy in George Floyd, his partner say, hey, there's a camera there. He was looking up at the camera like, yeah, and what? You know, right. I'm right. still going to continue to do this. And then the public reaction, the the public reaction this time was much better in lots of ways than it was last time. But it's still amazing the number of people who will stand up in a bold faced way and make excuses for someone choking someone in broad daylight because they passed a bad $20 bill, maybe.
2: Right. And, and, and yeah, alleged crimes. And then, I mean, Siobhan, you talked about being a young person and being stopped while you're walking. And I'm glad Marquise also that you used the word children. Right. And, and it's not okay for any age range. Right. But when we're talking about Tamir Rice, this is a child. Mm-hmm. 12 mm-hmm. years old. A child, we are, we are meant to be protecting our children. And so for people to be making excuses around, you know, attacking and and abusing our children is just really, it's it's really hard to understand why another person, even if they don't have that direct experience, cannot empathize with just the sheer, you know,
0: wrong evil of something like that.
1: It's really
2: frustrating.
0: And the
1: terror of it, I mean, that's the, it gives trauma to a whole community
0: it's the dehumanization of it. And I think, like, you went to USC, right? And I'm sure you, did you ever get those emails of the alerts, oh, the crime sure, yeah. alerts? DPS. Right, mm-hmm. and I remember, we used to get upset because they would be so vague. It would be like Latino male, in a, between 5'7 and 6'2 in a Dodger cap. <laughs> literally, these were literally beats. that's, that's, that's actually one I specifically okay. remember, because they were often very broad. But it's almost like they even tell, like they're telling us, these are non-humans walking around here and you're in danger. Mm. And so when this time when these situations come up, well he wasn't really a human, he was a criminal. They start they, they start pulling up records and start trying to find pictures of young people holding up you know uh, money phones in their Instagram <laughs> picture and saying, look, he was a thug, you know mm-hmm. It becomes a point where we get dehumanized and the empathy is non-existent because it's almost like people think we deserve it. We must be the criminals. That's why it keeps happening. Look at our jails. Look at who gets arrested.
1: Sheriff Villanueva in the paper today said, I don't understand why all these woke people are protesting because if you just follow the law, nothing will ever happen to you. Wow.
0: Because there's nothing wrong with the law, by the way.
1: Right. Right. Well, there's that.
2: (laughs) Because the law never changes to (laughs) serve the people in power. Right. right. We've had the
0: same laws.
1: That person is the highest elected police officer in Los Angeles County. Today in the paper he said that. Wow. Uh, And so it's, you know, so there's a way in in which it it continues. Uh, Brian, having spent time on the police department, you know, having written a book and, you know, been a bit of an activist, what are the things that you think do the most to move the police departments and police departments? Because I will say, I was just doing an interview yesterday and I said, look, policing is not like it was in 19, like when I was a teenager, It was very different than it is now. There's still lots of problems now. Like, I don't mean to say that it's anywhere near where it needs to be or should be or what we deserve, but it isn't like it was. You know, I was like, police officers call me sir. Police officers never call my dad sir, Mm -hmm. never. And with a child sitting right next to him, they wouldn't address him as sir. So uh, lots of things have changed. What are the things that you think get, are most effective in getting police departments to move?
3: Police officers, uh, police departments react to lawsuits. I mean, it's plain mm-hmm. and simple. Um, if you can't sue them for a, a large amount of money, then change is not going to happen. They mm-hmm. react to lawsuits, period. You know, I'm I'm supportive of like Black Lives Matters, and and I, I like the way they're out there protesting. But the mm-hmm. thing is, uh, protests uh, don't really affect police officers. Um, when I was working during the riots in '92, uh, I worked um, probably the first night I worked 18 hours second night like 16 hours Mm -hmm. I worked probably three weeks straight and by the time I got my check it was so large that I bought a jacuzzi I I paid off my car and so I bought a big tv so in office and my partners were saying man these rides are great we should have one every year wow so we don't have to work off duty you know the money was great so it, those things are very good visually, and it, it may help, um, I don't know, um, it may help the politicians make decisions or make change. But as far as affecting police officers, it, it doesn't work. It, it's very, it's very, there are very few things that actually affect the mindset of police officers. And um, you know, they're set on doing what they, what they wanna do, being in power, being in control. You know, I often talk about how, as a police officer, I felt that I could pull over anyone I could I could pull over Jesse Jackson with Al Sharpton in the car, um, you know, and, and nothing would happen. You know, that, that's the kind of power that I felt because of my training and, and the
1: support that I would have from the police department. So, you Judge know. Judge Cunningham at, on UCLA's <laughs> campus.
2: Yeah. It's so interesting to hear your perspective from the inside because it just validates a lot of the things that, you know, that people think about the police department in terms of like you know the police department is always like well there's a few bad apples and like if like, we can just get rid of them but what you're talking about is this is the culture this and and saying that we need that we need training you're like no we're we're getting trained like we're getting indoctrinated and like and the way that people are behaving is exactly the way that they've been trained to behave which is why for me the the changes that the the, the police commission just um, put through in terms of the limitations on the pretextual stops and holding police officers accountable. Well, holding them responsible for for holding themselves accountable is like you've got to be kidding me. I'm supposed to now trust this bad actor to to police himself, um, and that's why the Push LA Coalition has been calling. We want an end to pretextual stops. Right. Just end them. the The police commission is saying itself, like this. I think the quote you shared was you know something like there's some pretty you know around racial disparities, around it not being productive in terms of actually fighting crime or stopping crime. Why are we continuing to do this? So if we remove all of those reasons, what I'm left with is that you, it is your process to harass people. And like you said, it's a numbers game. <clears throat> and we're not concerned about what that does in terms of trust or a relationship or anything like that. It's, you know, we're gonna basically, you know, knock some heads around and maybe we'll find, and that, man, that piece about the clipboard, and then we're gonna go back and then make you match with something, that that's just
1: infuriating. Yeah, it's, it's you know, one of the challenges that I find in, in making public policy is, especially around policing, it's true of all issues, but. Policing has this element more than almost any other one. It's very hard for people to imagine something different.
2: Hmm.
1: Like, people who I had the expectation were very progressive. When we put forward the bill to end pretextual stops, they would say things like, well, what if someone's abducted a child? How are we gonna catch them? Stunning to me that Hmm. that's where you would go. You would say, okay, so that justifies all these things that we know happen. First of all, when a child is abducted and they give you the warning, almost always the license plate number is a part of the warning. Right. So you don't need a pretextual stop. That's a textual stop. Mm -hmm. Like that's a stop because. We know it's you. Yeah, we think you have this child and we stop you and you don't have the child. And, you know, and we we don't think you can lead us to the child to go or other and reform minded. And, and I you know, I want to note that. Uh, I'm very committed to and do a lot of work with reform-minded officers and I try to make sure they get assigned to my district and they have the resources they need and the room they need and they're protected uh, in their work. But even reform-minded officers will say, well, we don't really look for burglars in LAPD or any big police department in the country. So someone breaks in your house and the police come and they dust for fingerprints or whatever. And you know, Brian, you correct me if this is wrong. They say, "There's, there's no officer that goes around matching prints, <laughs> like that just doesn't happen. We pull people over. And if we happen to see that they have stuff in the back of their car, we try to connect it with a burglary. And sometimes occasionally we do. And so how will we ever catch burglars if we stop doing pretextual stops? Um, so it's its interesting the grip that it, you know, has on our heads. And I, I mean that for officers and non-officers. I mean, you know, one of the things Malina Abdullah a Black Lives Matter points out is, you know, the anti-police abuse anthem of our lifetime was written by the same person who stars in movies as a police officer.
0: Act- That's cute. What's interesting, and I remember um, when I spoke to you, Brian, you actually said officers know all the words oh, to the course. anti-police song oh, yeah. and they listen to them. Oh, you the, ever the been white with officers?
3: Them? They they know N.W.A. work Yeah. Oh, forward.
1: you've ever been with them backstage <laughs> and see how the officers are with them. They're more fan people than I am. Yeah. I
0: never thought about it, but right. you're right. Well, totally. They're, they're the biggest and so
3: I grew up listening to NWA, and um, I, I have one partner, and he would be saying stuff. And I'm like, well, where'd you get that from? He's like, NWA? Didn't you, didn't you know that? And I was like, I listened to it, but maybe I'm not really listening to it. But yeah. they listen to it. They know it word for word. Yeah. Word for word. And, and it's,
1: We're listening you know, too hard. Yeah. It's... Um, yeah, so it's it's one of those things that I think the imagination of organizers like BLM and, and Push LA, one of the most important roles they play is challenging the consciousness, not just of police officers, but of all of us. Like, we don't have to live this way. Right. Um,
2: and, and <clears throat> excuse me, since you brought up, um, well, we're, since we're talking about BLM and, uh, and I think um, you, you mentioned earlier, you know, the protests and there's a lot of conversation around like the, this defund the police, right? And this tagline, and you know, it makes a lot of people aren't into it. But I think you know, defund the police is a start of a conversation. So to your point, Marquise, around you know, people have trouble in imagining like what, what something else could be. Well, we've got some ideas, you know. And so, right, right. and I think the the way that we can get to defunding the police is by taking away some of these um, responsibilities that they have that they have no business doing. And if you can, if we can make the case and say. We don't need police to be doing X, Y, and Z. So once they are not, no longer doing that, then they don't need that money that they were that they had in their budget to be doing that. So for instance, with the pretextual stops, the example that keeps coming up is like, oh, okay, there's a bro-, you know someone has a broken tail light. Now this is this could be dangerous, right? They could stop, they could cause an accident. So I, I, they need to be pulled over so that we could. So so some of our push LA members have said, well, okay, yes, that that, that does sound like a, that could be a potentially dangerous situation, but can we have A civilian, just, you know, someone someone who who can pull over that person and say, hey, I noticed, you know, you have a mechanical, you know, uh, problem with your car. Can I either fix it on the spot? Exactly. Let's pull over to this parking lot over there. I can fix it for you because I have a truck with all the equipment that you need. I can do that for you and send you on your way. And now the streets are safer. Or I can give you a voucher to a mechanic in your neighborhood. So let's bring some dollars to that small business, get your light fixed, and that, that problem is solved. So I think you know the the defund the the defund conversation is dot 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 to invest in other strategies. And so what are those other strategies that we need? And that's where the creativity and the innovation can come through. And member and members of the community can say like, this is how I would want that situation to be handled. And it doesn't it doesn't need to involve police officers.
1: You know I think that's exactly right. Again, one of the things that I am coming to grips with as a lawmaker is we really live in a punishment society. Exactly. So our, our, and that goes across the board. Like somebody gets in trouble on the city council, kick them off the city council. Like somebody has a broken taillight, fine them. Somebody has tags that are expired, which you pretty much is an offense limited to people with, that don't have money. Pretty much. I mean, there's some exceptions, but pretty much that's a financial uh, infraction or it's generated by your finances. We make it more expensive is what we try to do. Instead of Mm -hmm. saying like, hey, why don't you have your tags? Then that lets the person say, I can't afford it. And then we can say, how much can you afford? And then we can work it out so that you can pay. We have another bill before the city council um, um, to do just that. And, And the safety stops, as you point out, Leslie, I mean, the contradiction there is if I have a broken taillight and it's dangerous, what good does it do for a police officer to give me a ticket and send me back onto the road?
2: Right. Zero. Right. Zero. This is revenue generation on right. the backs of poor people. Totally, because if, we, if
1: it was dangerous before the ticket, it's dangerous after the ticket. In fact, in a way, it's more dangerous. So the only remedy for that is to fix the taillight on the spot or make it so that they can get it fixed within very uh, close proximity to the time that, that they're notified about it. Mm-hmm. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's one of the things that, that I think we all have to continue to work on is getting people to understand we can be safe, we can have great communities without a lot of the um, problems that we've talked about today.
0: I think there's a lot of challenge um, and to both of uh, your point and Leslie's point, especially around crime and punishment, because I, especially even as black people, I think that's how we've always existed. Mm. So it's very difficult for us to see it any other way. It's even how we parent, right? Mm. And how many times have we heard in our own communities, if I don't beat you, the police will. Yep. We really believe that's a tactic to prevent danger for our children. So we be, we've almost bought into this crime and punishment mentality as a way to bring safety. One of the beautiful things about what you just said, Leslie, um, in the suggestions that you have made and has also been proposed by it into the council is that it's saying we want to look at things differently. We don't want to look at crime and punishment. We want to look at actual safety. What actually brings safety? You know what? A broken taillight can be unsafe. Here are some tools so we can make sure that this is fixed. It's important that your car is registered. Hey, we have a payment plan option, right? So how do we look at things preventively instead of looking at it as this has, you must suffer because you've made this infraction.
3: Well, one thing is that police, when they pull you over for a broken tail light, they're not, it's not because of safety issues. It's because they want to search your car.
0: Absolutely. Okay. I mean,
3: you know, that that's what it's about. They don't come... To our neighborhoods, to uh, enforce traffic, or to make us feel safe uh, in traffic, it's specifically a reason to search a car. And, and one thing too, I wanted to mention is that um, you know the police officers that you talk to, who are, are who are uh, you know want to make change and so forth. You know, I'm just curious, do they live in Los Angeles? Because it makes a big difference.
1: It, you know, a lot do a lot of them. Even if they don't live there, they were mm-hmm. they're raised there. Yeah. You know, like they were raised in the projects, or they were raised here, mm-hmm. and they. You know, had this idea. I don't know how they had the idea. They had the idea of like, oh, I can go in and change everything. And then they get in there, they go. That like, was there. That was me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that was there. Like, oh, this is a lot bigger right. than I realized. That, that, that was side. me. I was very right. idealistic, and that's why I
3: became a police officer. But the thing is, staying in the community, I always had that fear. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was a police officer, it was even worse because I had a gun, mm-hmm. and I knew that if I got pulled over and someone saw my gun, a police officer saw my gun, they would shoot first mm-hmm. before they even asked me if I was a police officer. And just little things, um, being in the com- uh, living in the community. I'm a track coach. I have a shovel in my um, trunk, plastic bags, uh, you know, some. Cord cuffs and stuff because I what work on the doing? track. Right, <laughs> I know if Close I get the body, sir. I know, <laughs> you know, I, I know when I can put. I'm going. I'm going straight to the police station. Right? Yeah, yeah. And so I have that fear all the time. Mm-hmm. Even now, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. you have that fear. So,
2: you know, that's so, it's so frustrating too. When you bring bringing up, like the just like the broader theme of violence, is that it's just so frustrating that we as black people are depicted as, as the ones that are violent when the foundation of this country is violence, <laughs> literally everything that it's the foundation of our country. So to, to be, you know, so we've learned that it's, my, my husband and I were talking about disciplining our children and understanding that using violence against our children is also something that's been embedded in us and and that we've been trained from times of slavery. Yeah. And and working every you day come to get your child. Right. That Absolutely. Means, I mean,
1: that means use violence. Yeah. Right?
2: <laughs> but it's a serious thing to be like working every day to think about how insidious the culture of violence and how embedded it is in our society, and trying to remove the tentacles in every aspect of our lives. Um,
1: yeah. No, I think, that, I, I think that that's right. Uh, you, you know, the exciting thing about now is, is the activism. And so, Brian, you've chosen to re- write books. I want to hear about your mm-hmm. books, where we can get them. Can we get them on Amazon? You can we get them can on Amazon? Them at, can we get them at Esauan, mm-hmm. in, the, in the community? Right. Uh, so tell us your titles and, uh, and, and where we can get them.
3: The first book is called One Time, The Story of a South Central Los Angeles Police Officer. Um, I wrote that when I was still on the job. I wrote most of my books when I was still on the job. Um, And that deals with the culture of violence, how violence is accepted on the police department. And then uh, my second book that I wrote is called Honor Without Integrity. And that deals with what a police officer's mindset where you're wanting to do things the right way, make a difference, but you just circumvent everybody's civil rights and you do whatever you can and you justify it by saying, you know, I'm, I'm trying to help and make a difference. Uh, and then my third book is on domestic violence. It's called Hit Me Once, Hit Me Twice. Wow. And so you can get all of them on Amazon. Um, I, I used to sell a lot at Esawon, um, but the, the books are kind of old now, and I don't think they carry them anymore,
1: but um, you can definitely get them on Amazon. And you can order them, Esawon. Oh or, yeah, you can order them. Not to pitch too much for Esawon, yeah. but, but <laughs> Esawon and Malik Books, you, they'll order mm-hmm. uh, any book by Black Arthur for you. So okay. you got that. And uh, Leslie, the demands of the campaign, what you all see going forward. Um, and um, you know how you all plan to make it a hot summer for
2: mm-hmm. all of us
1: in Los Angeles.
2: Uh, well, so the, so what Push LA is working on right now is actually um, related to a motion that you co-authored a few years ago. It's been quite a while, almost so this three is years, in the, yeah, in the summer of 2020. Uh, and so this uh, in in you know connecting to stopping pretextual stops. so we're looking at what are what are alternatives to having armed police officers in traffic stops. Uh, and so there's been a, a community task force that's um, applications have been uh, solicited, consultants have been hired. So there should be a report coming out that talks about what some of these alternatives can be. And we want to make sure that there's community input for that. so that's kind of the next the next phase of that, that campaign that we're working on. Um, and so we'll be you know looking for community members to let us know what they think.
1: Excellent. All right, this show is uh, about South Los Angeles and we're trying to uh, document the history of you know, our culture, our politics, and uh, our aspirations at this time. So we ask uh, folks some what we call uh, lightning round questions about South LA that we ask you to answer without a beat. And so we will uh, begin, we'll, we'll, I'll just throw out the question, whoever wants to answer first does that and then take a beat and the second person answer. Favorite song that represents South L.A.?
2: How to survive your South Central.
1: Uh, for me, it was uh, Ice Cube, It's a Good Day. That's answer
3: one. And the second one is Montel Jordan, This Is How We Do It. Yes. Yeah, that's a, that's an only L.A. song. <laughs> that's so funny. Like I hate that
2: song. <laughs> I don't
1: like the
3: song either. <laughs> I can't
2: stand the song. <laughs> me
1: either. I cannot stand the song, but it's an L.A. song. Like, is it is. Just...
0: Because when South Central out, does it does like right. nobody when does. It. Yeah, no. no.
1: I mean, it's like Randy Newman's I Love L.A., months. like, That's not a good record, but it's, you know, when they play it after the Lakers win, it's, it it works. I'm not sitting there with my hands holding Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I'm not celebrating. It it works every time.
3: Okay. You guys aren't invited to the barbecue. (laughs) Yeah, I know, right? Right. I I am, because
1: that's my song. Um, Yeah, no, you, you, uh, when you're DJing, that's one of those songs, this is how we do it as a song you resist playing. But every time you do, it works. It's going the crowd. <laughs> it just yeah. moves the crowd. All right, uh, change maker from South LA that inspires you, uh, my brother Ken Bentley. Uh,
3: he used to be the vice president of Nestle. Nestle. Yeah, and he donated a lot of money to the community. started a lot of programs that are still going on. Right now, he has this um, ages this uh, organization called Advocates Golf. Pro Tour, wow. where he's helping uh, black golfers earn money uh, to go on the um, PGA Tour. Wow. And uh, he's from South LA, and you know, so he, he's my role model. Excellent.
2: I got two, I'm gonna go with, uh, with Issa Rae, for really just depicting South LA and Inglewood as just not a nightmare, not a fantasy world, but just yeah. a place where it we live and grow, yeah. you know? I just, I really love seeing places I recognize, and then just, you know, being in the background. So I'm going to say Issa Rae and also um, uh, Frederick Casey Price, who's the, wow. the founder of Crenshaw Christian Center. That's the church I grew up in, and in particular, his, um, his a series that he taught called Race, Religion, and Racism. Oh,
1: yeah. He went in.
2: Woo! He went in. <laughs> yeah. And like, I'm an ordained minister, and like, yeah. that's kind of the root of my activism is mm-hmm. in the black church. And so, for him to to say, you know, religion is a tool of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Mic drop. Yeah. So wow, yeah. wow,
1: those are uh, those those are big ones. Uh, favorite place or location to experience Black culture in Los Angeles?
3: I'm gonna say, uh, L.A.'s a uh, Taste of Soul. Nice. Mm-hmm. Um, I really enjoyed it in the beginning. Um, I don't, I don't go now, but I used to go all the time.
1: Well, we haven't had it. I can't wait right. for us to hey, redo it in real area. life. And, and it's really
3: grown. But yeah. um, you know, I really, I really like that, and I think it's a good experience for us. Nice, of
1: the, nice.
2: Yeah, I'm gonna coast yeah. on the Taste of Soul, and then also I was reflecting on like what I, what South L.A. culture means to me. And I would just say just Crenshaw Boulevard in general. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. it just, I just remember being a teenager, you know, on Sundays and, yeah. and just like the car culture is there. There's food, there's music, there's murals. Um, there's Destination Crenshaw. Boom. So, you know, <laughs> so I just think Crenshaw Boulevard is just South L.A., yeah
1: excellent well thank you all so much uh for sitting with us on uh mhd off the record thank you you for sharing thank you for sharing your stories your hopes and your dreams and your uh frustrations and thank you both for being a part of the struggle i think you know the 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 upshot of this story is los angeles continues to get better because people fight to make it better Mm -hmm. and there is an ideal that we're a city of angels uh, but none of us pop out the wound as angels and so we got to work together to create the angelic beloved community. And so you all are a big part of that and you're on the front lines of that struggle. So thank you so much. And thank you for sitting with us for this hour. Thank
3: you.
2: Thank you.
0: Thank you you for listening to MHD Off the Record and special thank you to Felicia, the poetess Morris of Morris Media Studios in Leimert Park. For more information, please visit mhdcd8.com and follow at MHDCD8 on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Don't forget to rate us five stars, subscribe, and share with a friend.